Welcome to Liberty's Talk, the podcast of Liberty's Journal. I'm Celeste Marcus, managing editor of Liberty's and the host of this podcast, on which I talk with our writers and the larger Liberty circle about whatever is on our minds. On this episode of the podcast, Leon Wieseltier, the editor of Liberty's, is actually going to be hosting because he is going to be talking to me about my most recent essay in Liberty is titled A Wounded Loyalty, which is currently available in front of the paywall on our website. And it is about uh, the rise of the radical Israeli right and recent trends within the Israeli political ecosystem. But it's also about how to be loyal to a country while still criticizing it, Um, how to love a state while still um, holding it accountable when necessary. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Liberties Talk. I'm Leon Wieseltier, the editor of Liberties. Our podcasts are usually brought to you by Celeste Marcus, our managing editor. But today the host is the guest, uh, and she's going to talk with me about a really extraordinary essay that she's just published in our new issue. Uh, It's called A Wounded Loyalty, the loyalty being to the democratic, multi-ethnic Jewish state of Israel, the wound referring to the the crisis that Israeli democracy is on the brink of owing to certain recent developments in Israeli politics. It's an essay that, frankly, I wish I'd written myself, um, and it is really... uh, the most significant liberal intervention in this discussion that I've read in many years. Uh, So Celeste, congratulations on the essay and welcome to your own podcast. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. And um, I will say that one of the models, my primary model for this essay was the essay that you wrote about Kahanaism in the 80s so oh yeah that was uh in the late 19th century yes right yes right so um you well, know that you. this is a tradition that you are a part of and that you are a model for so thank, thank you, you. this is a fight that's been happening well the fight against uh extreme right-wing zionism is old but kahana introduced a whole new dimension of fanaticism and racism into the struggle, uh, and that, as you will, as we will discuss, as you write about so empirically and so elegantly, is um, one of probably the most alarming development in Israel today. Let's start with you briefing our listeners and our readers about an Israeli fiend named Itamar Ben-Gvir, about whom they should, alas, probably know more than they do. So if you could tell us who this man is and why he represents what I once called the demons of the Jews, uh, that would be a good place to start. Yeah, so we've already given a bit of an introduction to Ben-Gvir because we've talked a little bit about Mayor Kahana, and you can't really understand... Itamar Ben-Gvir, if you don't know who Kahana is or the, the, 
the ways that he um, changed the country, poisoned it, offered an example of a particular strain of racism. Um, and Ben Gvir is the contemporary counterpart okay. to Kahanas. And I think, so let me just say that um, Kahanas had a party in Israel and in in the 80s it was called the Kach party which translates as thus um and in in the 80s they it was outlawed from Knesset it was banned from Knesset um by a law called the racism law which was pioneered by the then Likud party um which of course as our listeners may or may not know is is today Benjamin Netanyahu's party so it is the it is the center right party the far right parties being parties like Ben Gvir's party Otsma Yehudit um Otsma Yehudit meaning Jewish power oh I I translated it as courage but yeah yeah okay um yeah in the essay I translated it as courage but yes um anyway so it's important it's important to know that he was banned from Kahana was banned from Knesset and Ben Gvir was in Kahana's party he was his father was in it and then he was in it as a as a young person um and he really does think of himself um I mean he doesn't talk this way publicly anymore but he he did and he talks this way privately to his own um followers he thinks of himself as the the emissary of kahana and he thinks of himself as resuscitating kahanism in a way that is um in spirit the same as mayor kahana's party was and mayor kahana's ideology was but because he is crafty and you you have to understand that about him he's found a way to um, wriggle back into the Knesset without technically breaking any laws, um, which allows him to have much more influence politically than Kahana was able to because they banned him. And I'm not making this up or I'm not even theorizing. He's, he had said this. Um, he said this to a follower of his who, uh, who reported it. So that's an important thing to understand about who he is. And the other important thing to understand about who Ben Fear is, is, um, he is the head of a party with Mayahudi, which is likely going to um, it's going to get an, enough seats in the next election, which is next month, that he will be able to um, play a significant role in deciding who actually gets to be the prime minister. So it's not enough seats that he could, he's never going to be like, he's never going to be prime minister. Um, but because of the ways that the Israeli government operates and the way that somebody um, beca- like achieves the premiership, um, he could, he could be kingmaker. He could, it could be his party that decides who wins. Um, and that's really important to understand because, well, we, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, you just, when we say that he is a Kahanist, we are saying that he is virulently anti-Arab, right? That he is a racist, that he is a nativist, that he is a xenophobe, and that he um, he has no intention of sh- ever sharing. He, he does not believe that the Jewish state, that Israel, should ever share power with Arabs. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I think there, there are conservative things that we can say about Ben Gvir's racism that, 
um, are demonstrable just from public things that he says up in places like Twitter and to the media. Um, he, he, he will always be attacking the Arab parties in Knesset as um, terrorist supporters. Even somebody like Mansour Abbas, who has bent over backwards his entire career, or probably his entire life, to um, remain as neutral and even-tempered and... Um, forgive me, but as unproblematic as possible. Um, even somebody like Mansour Abbas, he, Ben Fear will accuse of being a terrorist supporter. Um, and so it's things like things like that where the public just knows that Ben Fear is going to do that. And, you know, his supporters or his apologists will say, well, that's not, that's not racism. Here are all of the reasons why we know that this is true. Um, here are, you know, when he attacked, um, when he attacked, Mansour Abbas for taking the the bread out of the mouths of Jewish children because he got he, he got Knesset to um, give an enormous amount of money to support Arab communities within Israel. Um, at the same time that there there was a recession in the country, so um, food became more expensive and it was harder for poor Jews to get food. So he he said he tweeted that Mansour Abbas was taking the bread out of the mouths of Jewish children or something like that. I'm paraphrasing. Um, that's something that like you know his supporters would say. Well, well, he is doing that, and it's you know, but those are that's as far as he'll go publicly. Privately. Um, he, we, so I'll, I'll give an example of how I know what I'm about to say. There was a young woman who fell in with the Ben Gvir group and she became very, very close to him when she was just a teenager. And under his guidance, under his mentorship, um, she began not attacking Arab Israelis, but, um, in, in, getting them to attack her basically. So she, she went and stayed with him for a Shabbat and she went to the Arab Kaspa and under his direction whispered, um, Muhammad is a pig into the ear of an Arab because she knew that he, it would start an uproar and that that man, that Arab would get in trouble for attacking her for doing that. Um, and the longer that she stayed within his orbit, within Ben Gvir's orbit, um, the more, uh, well, illegal, her actions became. So she so went and lived on provocation and incitement of Israeli Arabs. In the beginning, when she was just a teenager, and then she sort of, yeah. as she matured, she she just started attacking them. Um, yeah. She never she never actually physically assaulted an Arab, but she did once set an, an Arab's car on fire. And this yeah. was when, she, so she and a friend of hers attacked an, an Israeli army base because in addition to hating Arabs, they also hate the Israeli government and the Israeli military for stopping them from um, setting up illegal settlements when they do do that, which they don't always do. Um, and she was caught and uh, the court was going to put her under house arrest with her mother. And then Ben Gvir pulled some strings and got her to be under house arrest in his home. Um, and because he is, he is a lawyer. I mean, he shouldn't be able to do that just because he's a lawyer, but he was able to, but I should say it's, it's useful for the current conversation just to say that he is a lawyer and he understands the Israeli legal system. And while he was, while she was living with him, he gave her indications that there was an Arab living nearby who should be taught a lesson. 
um, he didn't tell her that she should fill a bottle with gasoline and set and you know set the car on fire that way. He didn't give her explicit instructions, but he indicated that that's what he wanted her to do. And when she did it, um, and she came back to his home, she. I know all of this, by the way, because this woman um, gave a long interview to the, yeah, yeah. to an Israeli to an Israeli uh, news channel called Mako, um, and I wish that I wish that this interview was available in English. There's really far too little available about Ben Gvir in English, um, but this is one of the only uh, windows into his world in either English or in Hebrew. Um, so it's a it's a really important source and. In, in that interview, she recounts the story. So she says that he, she had, she did this, she set the car on fire in the middle of the night. She forgot to get rid of the empty bottle of gasoline. He found it and disposed of it for her. And then when he came into his house, he yelled at her for doing, for doing it because he knew that neighbors would be able to hear him. But while he was yelling at her and pretending to say like, how could you do this? He was giving her the thumbs up sign. Right, instead um, of dumb racism, smart racism. Exactly. I mean, or, very or crafty. Cunning racism, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Right. So yeah. that's the kind of thing. And he's also said that he would uh, represent Jews who, Jewish terrorists who were being tried for murdering Arabs. Uh-huh. Um, and he said that he would never represent a, a rapist or just a regular murderer, but he would represent a Jewish terrorist who kills an Arab because that's not regular murder. That's an ideologically motivated murder. So that's in a separate category. He is exactly the sort of figure who gives nationalism a bad name. Um, yeah. And deserves to give nationalism a bad name, though we'll leave for another day why nationalism's good name needs to be defended in ways that it's not being defended right now. Um, one of the things that's changed over the years, certainly since since I wrote about Kahana, uh, whom I knew, and so, um, you know, from Brooklyn? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh, I was, uh, I'm, I was a member of the Jewish Defense League in high school. I wrote about this many years ago in the New Republic, and um, and Kahana came to my high school, which was its darkest hour. It was otherwise a very enlightened Zionist um, religious high school in Brooklyn. Uh, but one of the things that's changed since Kahana, and we know this. Americans can understand what I mean by this, and so can Western Europeans, that over the, in recent decades, the center has been continually moving right. And uh, I mean, right words. And <coughs> when you talked about the old Likud, uh, that's like talking about the old Republican Party in the United States. The Likud now, even though, even though it is not, um, excuse me, even though it is not doctrinally or ideologically um, xenophobic and fascist the way Ben Gvir is, uh, has made itself hospitable, its own version of the big tent, to um, people who harbor very dangerous and ugly ideas. And the person who was responsible for creating the big tent 
in the contemporary Likud was, of course, Benjamin Netanyahu, who is, of course, running again. Um, well, can I just say something about that quickly? Yes, yes. That's why I bring uh, it up. Yes. Yeah. So I want to, I, I think that um, there are, I, I want to be careful by focusing on Ben Gvir. I think that it's, it's easy to ignore the rightward shift of the entire spectrum. So I'm glad that you bring it up. It's certainly true. Uh, one example of the fact that that is true is that Likud was the party that banned Kahana and Likud is now the party that is just very eager to sit with Ben Gvir. Um, and we, I mean, that's not speculation. Bibi has made that clear. Um, like since I wrote the piece and since its publication, he is, he has like made it very clear that, that, that well, he's also made him an offer earlier before you wrote the piece, right? Or he flirted with him at one point. He did last year. He, I mean, this is what I was going to say about, about BB. BB will do anything. So I mean, he, all he wants is to be in power. So I think that they're actually, I, I want to distinguish between, um, BB's opportunism and, I do think that there it's not as bad as the Ben Gvir. Ben, ben Gvir is really a thug, but there are members of the Likud party that I do think are motivated by racism. Um, and I think that that's become more, more evident in, in recent years. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I get, when I give an example in the essay of um, mm-hmm. a law that was passed recently like in the last year or two, that it is illegal to to have to fly Palestinian flags on um, like campuses or within institutions that are funded by public money, and they've also they've also tried to um, make it illegal to fly Palestinian flags anywhere within the country, um, and there are there are cases of Palestinians being. Um, approached by by police officers or by members of the army simply sorry not palestinians by arab israelis or palestinian israelis um simply for holding a palestinian flag which is not an illegal thing to do in the country unless it's in a place that is funded by the government but the fact that it is illegal now to um to have a palestinian flag on a place that is funded by the government the reason that they did that was because there were um there were protests um on Israeli Independence Day, which is the same as the Nakba Day, or it, it's it means the destruction and it's the commemoration of um, it's the commemoration of the establishment of the Jewish state, and it's also the day that Palestinians and Arab Israelis um, dedicate to commemorating the loss of their um, their oh, land. The, 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 that's the expulsions, the War of forty eight forty nine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can't say the loss of their state because they did not have a state then. But Nakba Day has always been a very um, contentious issue within Israel. And on that day, there were protests in um, colleges throughout Israel that had Arab Israeli students, and the protests got um, pretty violent in certain places. And it is absolutely true that there are a number, I mean, I have no idea what the percentages are, but there's a non-insignificant percentage of participants in protests like that who would like to see the destruction of the Jewish state um, and who do want a Palestinian slave from the river to the sea. And um, every Zionist 
has to oppose that. At the same time, if Israel is a democratic state, it has to um, deal with the fact that there are going to be protests within it, as long as they're nonviolent, um, that they're not going to like, that Zionists are not going to like, and that are still legal. So outlawing flying a Palestinian flag just seems to me um, an illiberal thing to do. Um, And it's a good example of the illiberalism of uh, the the center-right parties within Israel. It is. Yeah, yeah, that's a good place from which to take the discussion up a little. One of Kahana's central claims was that a democratic Jewish state is a contradiction in terms and that the state can either be democratic or Jewish. And in his um, obscene view... He thought the state should be Jewish and not democratic. He justified that on religious grounds as well as on racist grounds. What we're seeing in Israel, to a certain extent, though not yet quite as drastically as what we're seeing elsewhere in the West, is the decline and even the disappearance of liberal nationalism. Um, you know, people who know history know that nationalism began as a liberal movement. I am going to write something about this in the next issue, I think. Um, But what has happened for a variety of reasons is that um, these two terms that once went together and, and corrected each other or complicated each other and enlarged each other and deepened each other have now been completely dissociated, completely dissociated. (coughs) And in Israel right now, I mean, when I look at Netanyahu right now, um, what I see is the Jewish Orban. Um, That's certainly how he's styling himself. What? That's how he's styling himself. Yes, and he has associated himself with Orban, of whom he's fond, and he has associated, he, he's very fond of Modi, and he's very fond of Bolsonaro, and until the Ukraine war, he was happy to be in Moscow a lot, even though sometimes he had to be there for strategic reasons, because the Americans weren't dependable enough. Um So there is playing out in Israel right now what is playing out in a variety of other countries, including in our own, which is liberal patriots finding themselves in the predicament that you describe as a wounded loyalty, which is um, how to be loyal to a democracy in crisis, how to identify that crisis and when, you know, what is the moment, God forbid, or Mazzini forbid, um, when one when one feels one has to withdraw one's or, or shrink one's loyalty a little. And one of the reasons your essay is so powerful is because you have written an example of how to um, candidly and truthfully criticize a democratic state that one loves, but that has 
governmental and political tendencies that one hates. Uh, and maybe you could talk a little bit about this whole question of loyalty and its complexity. Sure. One of the one of the tasks I set for myself in this essay, uh, and one of the reasons that it is so long, is uh, disentangling contemplation on the the state of affairs in Israel itself from conversation about that subject, because it's, it's really easy for them to just sort of blur into one another. What I, what I mean by that is like really focusing on the dynamics there. It's super confusing. Um, the political situation in Israel is confusing. Just, I mean, the very structure of the government is confusing. Um, and also any time that I want to figure out what is actually going on over there, uh, of course, I'm, I'm finding that out by reading things that other people have written about what is going on over there. So I feel like I have to read five things about any one subject in order for me to feel as if I have um, an accurate view of what's happening. Because even if they're not lying, um, they're not telling the whole truth. Nobody can tell the whole truth in anything, of course, but also about this subject in particular. It is just like so easy uh, to, um, to end up fighting for a particular side. And instead of talking about what's what's really happening, um, and one of the ways that that particular issue is inflamed with regard to Israel is that when a Jew is talking about the Jewish state, um, it there's there's always going to be well not always but for me there is um, an imperative to be loyal to my own people that yeah. is is also um, buttressing any kind of thought or argument that I want to make. So I'm not impartial and I'm, I'm never going to be impartial about this subject. I can't be, I don't want to be. Um, and that's that really difficult. One of the things that that partiality enables is participation in the struggle. In other words, it's not simply, you know, many people, especially many people on the left, act as if Israel is some sort of hypothesis or experiment that still awaits their judgment or their approval or their disapproval, and they do believe in the Jewish state or they don't believe in the Jewish state, and it's all this very precious position-taking situation, when in fact what you're describing is a stance that is based on solidarity with one's own people, and therefore is inclined to find those among one's own people who are struggling for the right values. And in Israel, there are many, many such people. Uh, one of the things that always struck me as interesting about the, the years that Trump was in the White House is that there wasn't... Um, the, the, there wasn't this whole debate of can, can I still be an American or not. What there was was this thing that became known, for better or worse, as the resistance. And if you despised Trump, as any sentient person would, um, you, in one way or another, contributed to the struggle against Trump and the forces he represents. And the same, and that would be partly an expression not just of your moral beliefs but of your patriotism, of your love of country. Uh, 
And that is also the case, or should be the case, when it comes to Israel as well. Um, right? That, 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 that one participates, sometimes one expresses one's love for something by attempting to reform it and to, to, to correct it. Uh, well, and so, I certainly think that that is the, that, that is the aspiration. That should be all of our, that should be our goal, our collective goal. Um, and as, as you and I both know, um, this subject, I mean, I feel this so intensely and I've also, I've noticed, I mean, I've, I've had for the past several months, many conversations with many friends of mine who are writers. So I've not had many conversations with, um, friends from the Jewish community about this essay, um, because I've spent my entire life talking to people from the Jewish community about subjects related to this. And because I wanted to know how to write about this in a way that would be, um, you know, legible and uh, open to people who aren't from the same background as me. So I've spoken a lot to friends of mine who don't know that much about Israel. And it's so interesting to me that what I've heard from people very often is like, wow, I've never heard about somebody from one country being so uh, like tied to and devoted to or enmeshed with a country that they don't live in. Um, and some, one, one person even said to me, I, I don't know anybody who feels like the way that you feel about their own country. Um, so I, I think that it is very sensitive. Um, the subject is so sensitive. I'm not saying it's the only one that's like this. I've heard, uh, I've heard Russians talk about Russia in the way that sometimes I talk about Israel and I've heard Ukrainians talk about right. Ukraine. I mean, there are certain, there are, but America, um, I, I think that we feel our connectedness to America, um, probably just as much, but not as viscerally and not as, um, heatedly. And so when I, when I do think about how I talk about this subject with Jews, um, if you're on one side of the political spectrum, I mean, it's just so, it just always feels rigged depending on where they come from or depending on what their loyalties are. I'll give you an example um, of what I mean by that, of how difficult it is to get to the, to the essence and to get away from all of the trappings of it and all of the, um, all of the political signaling. Uh, and this is an example I'm going to give, but I'm, I come from the right and I grew up in a, in a family and in a community that was on the right. Um, I'm, I know that, that the, actually. sorry, you have that in common. Yeah, we do. Yes. Um, but I'm sure I know the that there are, after this, I'll give an example from the left because I do have examples from the left and I don't want to make it sound like only one side is rigged. I think that they both are. Um, but here's, here's an example. I was talking to an acquaintance of mine who is, um, he lives in Israel. He now writes for the Wall Street Journal. He used to write um, for, I think, Times of Israel. And he speaks fluent Arabic and he, he writes about Arab Israelis. That's his subject. And he is incredibly knowledgeable. Um, and this was, this was a few years ago. I was not sure yet what I thought I was just getting out of the, um, I was like detoxing myself from the Kool-Aid I've been drinking for the past, my entire life. Um, and I wanted to figure out how far on the left he was, but I didn't want to ask him how far he was because you don't do that sort of thing. So what I asked instead was, well, do you think Israel is an apartheid state? And now I didn't mean what do you think about apartheid? What do you think about Israel? Um, I meant, 
how far left are you? So he looks at me and he's like, oh, well, that's an interesting question. I think that there are some similarities that can sometimes be useful. Um, and then he started like giving me specific examples about certain things that would happen in South Africa that are kind of analogous to things that happen in Israel. And I like went blank because I didn't know what he was talking about. And he was like, he said, um, well, how much do you know about apartheid in South Africa? And I said, I don't know anything about it. I mean, so this is, this is what I mean. Like, this is, I, I didn't know enough to even understand like what his answer was to that question. Um, I was only asking it because I was trying to like suss out which part, which group he was going to be a member of. Um, okay. So that's one example from the right. And I think we both understand the significance of that interaction and things like that happen all the time. And usually when you're talking to somebody about this subject, they're perfectly willing to comply and to just answer the question in a way that explains what their allegiances are. Um, he's an honest person and he'd also been outside of the American discourse for long enough that it's possible. He just like didn't, understand what I was doing. Whereas if I'd spoken to somebody who like lives in Brooklyn and is an Orthodox Jew, um, from the left or the right, they certainly would have known. Um, or it's possible that he like just wanted to prove to me that I didn't know what I was talking about would have been fair. Um, because I didn't. And here's another example. I was talking to a friend of mine about um, like travel plans because we wanted to go, we wanted to go to Europe together. And I said, Oh, well you've never been to Israel. Do you, want to go to Israel with me. Um, and she said, no, I don't think that I would feel comfortable going to a country that has committed such egregious crimes. And I didn't say, well, what are you talking about? Because I knew that she wouldn't know. Um, but if I'd asked her and she'd said occupation and I said, well, what do you know about the occupation? Or if she'd said, if I'd even said, well, do you know that West, the West Bank and Gaza are not the same thing? I'm not convinced that she would have known that. Um, so that's the kind of thing that I mean. Like it, generally when you're talking about this subject, it's supposed to be comfortable because everybody knows where everybody stands. Anyway, if um, Israel's abuses are her standard for tourism, she probably didn't understand how severely she had restricted her travel around the world. I did want to ask her like about every other country she was, was willing to visit, but I mean, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been a fair fight just as when he told me, you know, when he asked me what I knew about South Africa, my answer was nothing. He didn't like, you know, pummel me with the fact that I had just embarrassed myself. It was understood. Um, But, you know, I want from the fact that apartheid, you know, it is a, it is actually a stupid adjective to apply to Israel, and in, to some extent, if you uh, consider the origins of the situation there, even to the situation on the West Bank, the word apartheid is a shorthand that is meant to delegitimate the state of Israel. That's yeah. what it is. It is not an analytical term. It is an emotional term and an ideological term. And so it goes with most conversations about Israel and Palestine. That, that what doesn't happen with most other countries is that no matter how virulent one criticism, one's criticism of China or Russia or India or Pakistan or Hungary or Brazil or Venezuela or Nicaragua uh, is, I don't hear anybody suggesting that Nicaragua or Venezuela or China should not exist. Right. Uh, 
there, so there is, uh, and for me, the red line, the, the tripwire into the kind of um, dishonest discourse that you've been describing has always been the question of legitimacy. Uh, when I hear that somebody finds no legitimacy in a Jewish state, and I use the word Jewish there emphatically not in a religious sense, um, then I know that we're not really talking about any concrete injustices that have been done to Palestinians, let alone Israelis. We're not not at that level at all. We're somewhere else. Not least because, and I don't understand this, the Jewish state is not going to cease to exist. So are just... Nor Nor should it. Um, but it's not going to. And so when leftists say that Israel has no right to exist, and that is their only contribution to the conversation about Israel and Palestine, they're not helping Palestinians. They're not, um, it's not about that at all. As you wrote in a previous essay a long time ago, they are simply signaling membership in the community of the elect. Yeah. Uh, that's what they're doing. and Which, which uh, of course, is nauseating for a Zionist because the way the, the laziest um, the con- contribution to a conversation on this subject from the left completely delegitimates our ex- the Jewish state's existence. Like, that is, like, base level. Right, um, right. I know that's what I'm saying. That's right. That's right. Right. And, and if that's... that's constructive contributions to the discussion and understanding of what ails Israelis and Palestinians. They can, that contributes exactly nothing to the amelioration of the problem. Nothing. Not only that, I mean, it shuts down the conversation and so emphatically that if you were, if you were to, if you were to bring, raise any facts about what is actually happening over there, if they're just going to say Israel shouldn't exist at all, I mean, it, it means that, Anything beyond that is completely shut down and they'll say that it's immoral or whatever. Well, when um, I read or hear that somebody no longer believes in the Jewish state uh, or anything like that, um, my own view is that I'm no longer interested in what they have to say about Israel or the Palestinian problem uh, because they're, they're operating somewhere else. They're yeah. operating somewhere else. And it feels... The yeah. significance of your essay, the interest of your essay, is partly in the way it will speak to American readers, because um, we don't have a Palestinian problem, but we are being torn apart by questions of difference, uh, by uh, nativism and xenophobia by the the shocking and to use your word nauseating salience of immigration as a wedge issue in a contemporary American politics. Um, unfortunately, the United States now belongs on the list of countries of democratic countries in which democratic principles and practices have been thrown into question even if by democratic means, but, the, but have been thrown into question. And one of the reasons I hope that many people read your essay about Israel is because it is a parable about the dangers of both complacence and um, ideology 
of the worst kind, I mean, um, an ideology in trying to put a, a, a fractured democracy back together. Um, it's What we're facing here really is not in many ways unlike what Israel is facing. Netanyahu is Israel's Trump, except that Trump is a fool and Netanyahu is an exceptionally intelligent individual, which makes what he believes even more outrageous, uh, if in fact he believes it. Um, so I think that um, in studying the predicament of the liberal patriot in Israel or of the Zionist critic of Israel, what you are really writing about, and you could say something about this and then we'll wrap it up, is uh, the predicament of the liberal patriot in America and of the predicament of those who love this country but hate um, some of its recent developments. And I use the word hate advisedly. I'm not one of those people who think that when you say hatred, you're a hater. I think that there are certain things that if you don't hate them, you don't understand what they are. Right. I mean, it's you, you can't, you know, you, you know, the sentence, um, I don't hate Nazis makes no sense to me, because if you think you don't hate them, if you, then you don't know what the word Nazi means. Now, I'm not accusing the American right of being Nazi, though God knows it's a big tent. But but it's really this predicament. I'm going on too long, but it's really this predicament that you've written about how to love and criticize and even despise at the same time. Well, I think it's important to mention that when one is critical or repulsed by or discomfited by um, actions taken by a state that they are loyal to, there is an imperative to educate yourself about what it, what it actually is that the state is doing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not just to say, um, I hate them, or this is this doesn't represent me, or this isn't the America I knew. Um, and I'll give I'll give an example. When Trump was elected, I had teachers that I like had been my teachers in high school who had made Aliyah and moved to Israel. And when Trump was elected, they said um, everybody should just leave America, and you guys should have made Aliyah already. This is by made Aliyah. You... Some of our listeners may not know that. So. Uh, like that is just exactly the wrong response mm-hmm. to bad behavior taken on the part of representatives of your country and a country that you love. Um, the, the response should not be, I don't want to be here anymore. This isn't my country anymore. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an irresponsible response because not least because the country is going to continue to exist, even if you have withdrawn support for it. Right. Um, so it is incumbent on you to try and influence the way that your representatives behave. It's not enough just to say, I hate them. Um, it's not enough just to hate Trump. You have to oppose Trump and you have to oppose Trump in an educated way. You can't just say, I hate Israel. Um, I mean, you, you have to understand the, the intricacies of the actions taken by the political representatives that you oppose and how those actions influence the country that those um, those actors represent. So it's also it's, worth pointing out, don't you think, that, that even though that there are no 
pure states and there are no completely peaceful multi-ethnic societies that even though lately we've many society many countries have broken new ground and achieved new lows in the impurities or the abuses that state power and multi-ethnicity can be responsible for the fact is that there's something morally preening about the idea that if my country isn't perfect and I'm out of here. Yeah, certainly. And I'll give another example that's not even just morally preening, although I certainly think, I, I do think that there is a, a deep sense in which that kind of talk is immoral, not just um, extremely frustrating and obnoxious, but immoral because it, it's actually, you don't get to just decide that you don't care anymore. Um, if you don't, you don't get to do that. That is, that is, um, it's a, it's an immoral choice, but I'll give another, I'll give another example that I think is, is less obscene, but also bad, which is I was talking to somebody about this subject and they said, well, I mean, everybody thinks that every difficult political conundrum is never going to be solved, but you just wait it out and they'll figure it out. There's going to be a two state solution or what the Palestinians will get a state. The Jews will get a state. I don't know why you're tearing your hair out about this and you don't get to do that either. Right. Um, well, because complacence you write about in the beginning of your essay, which we haven't had a chance to discuss. Yeah. Right. So I just, I think that I was trying to give a model, not just of uh, a complicated loyalty, but also of the imperative to learn about the country that you are tied to, um, and to, to try and make sense of it, to feel some kind of, um, personal onus to discover what you actually think about what's happening over there, rather than just repeating things that other people have said. Other people really, they might be more knowledgeable than you. Um, there's that, there, I, God knows there are many people who know more about the conflict than I do on both sides of the spectrum. And it's, it's important to say that because just like, I think that a lot of people are become close to or end up reading one person who clearly knows more than they do about one subject or another. And like from them, from the political side that they're comfortable with, um, and they comfort themselves by saying, well, this person knows more than me. So if they think this, then it's probably true. And then you should remind yourself that there is somebody on the other side who knows more than you and they think the other thing. So it's incumbent on you to figure out for yourself. You don't get to just copy paste somebody else's worldview, especially not about something that is as important to you as, um, the Jewish state is to me or as your country should be to you. Um, but that's a good place for us to stop. Um, you know, on the, on the question of the troubled love of country. Okay. Uh, thank you, Celeste. I hope your essay has a wide readership. Um, I hope it infuriates all the right people. Uh, and, um, and I'll return the mic to you on our next podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed that conversation and you are not yet a subscriber, head over to libertiesjournal.com and correct that condition. 